0: I did a little clap, though, because last time my snap, my snap was really... I, was
1: I did. Serious. I heard Sorry. it. No, I heard it, though. It was fine. Okay. All right, so welcome to the To Our Gathered Catholic Podcast with Father Rob Kroll and me, Jim Fellows. Father Rob, how are you doing this week?
0: Hey, Jim. I'm doing well. Uh, just got back, uh, actually, a couple hours ago from... Uh, a gathering of our Milwaukee seminarians for a couple of days. We were relaxing about an hour north of Milwaukee, and it was very enjoyable. And tomorrow, we're, the whole seminarian community is going on a five-day silent retreat. So, um, looking forward to that as well.
1: Let's uh, jump into, like, fantastic news. Yes. Um, I was, after we recorded our last podcast, a couple hours later, all of a sudden, I look at my mail, and and and... Mail it to
0: our gathered. Yeah. Got an email. I Somebody know. emailed us. Our pleading and begging paid off.
1: <laughs> so,
0: so this is, uh,
1: and then uh, you know, I shared it with you, and I'm like, gosh, this is gonna be so exciting that we're gonna be able to answer this on the air, and and people will know that we actually like take through. And then you
0: go ahead and just you know send an email off and answer the whole
1: question like right there.
0: <laughs> well, this is the wife. <laughs> Of a childhood friend of mine. And I witnessed their wedding. So, I mean, there is a connection. You know, it wasn't totally random, but we're still grateful that Caroline sent us an email.
1: Well, and we're going to pretend that she hasn't heard the answer already. So we're right. going to share this question with everybody. So let's read. I'm going to read the email from okay. Caroline. Hi, Father Rob and Jim. Thank you for your podcast. I appreciate that you both are able to bring some humor to the podcast. It's nice to hear a priest with a good sense of humor. It makes him more human, which is, you know, we've been working on your humanity, so that's cool. (laughs) And my humor. (laughs) My, well, no, you're fine. My question our bishop, uh, shout out to Bishop Donald Hyang of Madison, Wisconsin, talks a lot about the kerygma, aside from being a very cool sounding word. Can you explain what the kerygma is and why don't we just use the term gospel or message from God?
0: Thank you, Caroline. Mm-hmm. Yes, and thank you, Caroline, for that wonderful question. Yeah, kerygma is kind of a word that I think most Catholics don't hear very often. Uh, I'm glad the Bishop uses it. It's one that we certainly uh, learn. If you you do some theology studies, you come across it quite regularly. And it's actually, um, it's spelled K-E-R-Y-G-M-A, kerygma. And um, it uh, comes from the Greek word for proclamation, and it basically refers to like the essential and initial gospel proclamation when the when the apostles went out and were commissioned by Jesus to go proclaim the word they they talked mostly about his life death and resurrection so we can kind of talk about the kerygma as the core of the christian message and then everything else that's you know kind of developed over the last 2000 years has flowed from this core christian message so that's essentially what kerygma is. I think the reason we don't, like, it's not simply synonymous with gospel because we usually use the word gospel to refer to one of the four gospels, one of the four written accounts by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then, of course, the gospel uh, is a whole long narrative. Uh, the The kerygma is kind of this core message within the gospel. And, um, yeah, and message from God is a bit too vague. Kerygma is more specific than that, so... Anyway. Um,
1: well, it'd be nice if, you know, other priests would explain that
0: when they use those terms. I know. That'd I know. be really but cool. Now, now it's something that Caroline or any of our listeners can um, pull out at a cocktail party to impress people. Yep. So, well done. Good answer. I like it. All right.
1: Um, we also got a text yes. with a question. After the reconciliation podcast, so okay. apparently that was a pretty popular one. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, then I'm going to see if I can. I'm going to paraphrase her question. Uh, she ref- she doesn't want to be named, um, although um, I just gendered her, so people will probably guess who it is. No, that's not <laughs> that's not the case at all. So we know she's um, at
0: least part of ha- one half of the world's yes, population. Yes, she's somewhere in the. Um, mm-hmm.
1: So her question basically is. Um, if she has um, the if, if she has facts about this is a question about gossiping and whether you had talked about uh, gossiping in the the reconciliation podcast mm. and uh, if she knows hypothetically speaking if she knows about a couple that the husband cheated on his wife three times and then uh, they got divorced because of it and if somebody else comes to her the unnamed person, and says, hey, wh- why, why do you think those guys got divorced? And she shares the facts. Is that, uh, is that something that should be uh, confessed hmm. in uh, confession? Is that a sin?
0: Right. Yeah. And I guess, you know, my initial response would be that part of the answer depends on context. Uh, who is this person? You know, do they have a right to know? Uh, This information but also about and you you yourself uh, brought this up when we were talking before the podcast about this question And so the question of motivation or intention is important as well So for example, I could see uh, a friend of this unnamed texter uh, Coming up and, and asking this question and maybe they're very good friends And maybe this friend doesn't really know the husband at all. So to say to her, you know, uh, actually, he was unfaithful to her several times. I don't think that that's, you know, sinful. Um, and especially if it's not spoken with the intention of, like, punishing the guy or in any way harming, you know, him, you know, professionally or anything like that. Um, so I think just stating a fact like that, I, I wouldn't consider that sinful. But um, but you know, and you said, well, why don't you? What, what was your thoughts? You had some thoughts on this as well.
1: Well, I think I think the whole intention thing is the critical thing about this. And mm-hmm. and if it's if your intention is to hurt somebody with what you're saying, and you've talked about that before, mm-hmm. um, if your whole intention is to cause damage to somebody, yeah. um, then then that's absolutely something that that. Uh, you know that that should be something that's brought to confession. Right. right. Um, if you're trying to, you know, give somebody a heads up and be like, you know, here's what happened, and maybe you shouldn't date this guy because this is right. history. Um, maybe not so much. I guess my point would be in in my in my history going to confession. Um, if it's if I'm on the fence about something, I'm just gonna mention it yeah, and man. then just be like, you know, it just it's like oh, by the way. I don't know if this falls, if this qualifies for a venial sin or whatever the case may be, but um, the, this is what I'd like to confess, and,
0: and I, I'm kind of struggling with it. Yeah, I think that's a really good principle. I mean, as a, as a priest now for many years who's heard many, many confessions, I think, uh, you know, once in a while somebody will just say, Father, I'm not sure this is a sin, and they'll, a, and they'll ask, and then we can kind of talk about it together. So, yeah. You're never offended in, by that. No, oh gosh, no, I think it's a sign of real maturity. So whenever in doubt, uh, ask the priest, you know, what he thinks, and he'll tell you whether, because there are certainly times when people think they've sinned when they really haven't, and that's helpful to clarify with them. But there may be times, too, that a person isn't sure, and then after having a conversation with the priest, they, you know, it's like, okay, we both kind of realize that there's at least some element of sin here. So, no, it can be something discerned together with the priest.
1: And There have been, there, there's not a lot of times, but there's been uh, at least one time that I remember uh, when I brought something to confession and we got done with confession and the priest looked at me and he said, don't ever bring that to confession again because you were not doing anything wrong.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: and you may feel bad about that and you may feel like people are making you feel bad about it, but you are not committing a sin. And and please yeah. don't bring this into confession again. right. right. So that yep. was interesting.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, that's good. That's good. So, right.
1: should we move on to our topic? Yeah, let's 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 move that direction. All right. Uh, today uh, we plan on talking about another sacrament. We're co- when we run out of sacraments, what are we going to talk about? <laughs> uh,
0: we'll figure something out. <laughs>
1: Are there more possible sacraments? That could <laughs> Maybe come we along? could.
0: Well, we could we could propose a new sacrament, <laughs> right. an eighth, an eighth sacrament. Well,
1: something, you know, if we get another just enough to <laughs> or, fill
0: our podcast. Or we could talk great. about sacramentals. Well, oh, that, you know, uh, you know, yeah. All right, yeah. Anyway,
1: so uh, what's that? What sacrament are we going to talk about? The Eucharist. You were going to yes. say that, and I jumped right in.
0: That's okay. That's okay. Um, it's it's uh, the source and summit of our Catholic faith, according. To the catechism and and so yes it's a very important sacrament and we're happy to be able to spend some time exploring it today um, where should we start
1: I think you should start us off Father, All and, right. and uh, go over some of the notes that you've put put together in this whole thing okay I'm limiting
0: well, you to 90 seconds <laughs> oh gosh thanks a lot <laughs> Well, even before looking at my notes, I think one of the things, you know, to maybe begin with, because it might connect with some of our listeners who are Catholic, is um, obviously we're all still in this COVID situation, and although Catholic churches are slowly, um, you know, returning to quote-unquote normal, you know, many of us experienced uh, during the the stay-at-home order that we couldn't go to Mass, you know. We were really blessed here at the seminary, because a lot of our seminaries were locked down here. We had a bunch of priests here, so we we had a you know, wonderful Holy Week, uh, beautiful liturgies. I felt a little bit guilty because I knew lots of uh, family members and friends who uh, were deprived of the Eucharist for many weeks, and for some of them that was a real source of hardship. So uh, that wasn't a good thing, but it might have been a good blessing in disguise in the sense that it helped people to recognize, you know, I really do value the Eucharist because when it's taken away from me, Uh, I missed it. And um, we can kind of take it for granted, maybe if we go every Sunday or even some Catholics go daily several times a week. So I think, um, yeah, this whole COVID experience has kind of highlighted for a lot of Catholics, how much they really do value the Eucharist. However, the the flip side is that um, there are some Catholics, I think, who, you know, once they got habituated during COVID to not going to church and just maybe watching it live stream and then that might have kind of tailed off you know now they're not going back when they can and so maybe maybe the COVID experience has kind of um, sifted a little bit the the chaff and the wheat we might say you know like who are the 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 Catholics who really value this sacrament enough that when they were deprived of it it hurt and now they're going back to it with much joy and then who were kind of the you know kind of more the lukewarm ones who maybe went occasionally or went out of mere custom or because they're supposed to do this, you know, but maybe didn't really uh, see it as what it truly is and didn't value it. And so so now they're kind of uh, not going anymore. And, you know, I think some of the priests that I know here in Milwaukee or or around Milwaukee have commented that uh, the churches aren't quite as full as they were before. So, uh, well, in
1: some cases, they can't be.
0: I mean, in Minnesota, it's still well, at like... 20 oh, minutes. yeah. Okay. So, right. It var- that's true. It varies from state to state. So, um, yeah. So, we'll see what happens in, in 2021. I think hopefully we'll, at least later in the year, we should be able to uh, have a, um, a more normal experience of Eucharist. But anyway... You were saying, you know, what was the statistic that you uh, were telling me about? Uh, so it's pretty pretty alarming.
1: Yeah, the the thing about well, I mean, let's state for the record that it's the source and summit of the church. But um the Catholic Church teaches what about the Eucharist, Father? What's the what's the dogmatic belief? Let's just yeah. state it for the record. Do you okay. have that in front of you? Do you have that memorized? <laughs> I think I can you know quote it? it
0: even without my notes. Yeah. <laughs> um so basically we as Catholics uh believe that at every Mass, ordinary bread and wine, uh, which are not very special at all, are are actually transformed miraculously uh, into the very body and blood of Jesus Christ. Um, they, they continue to look like and taste like bread and wine. So we, we kind of make this distinction in Catholic theology between you know, the substance and the accidents. So the accidents don't change. You know, there's nothing that would indicate that this uh, substance has changed. But in in reality, we believe that it's no longer bread and wine, but that it has truly become uh, the body and blood of of Christ. And um, so it's through God's grace, of course. God's the one who works the miracle, but he does it using the instrumentality of the priest's words and actions at the Eucharist. And, um, yeah, so that's a pretty mind-blowing thing when you think about it. Uh, it's and, not
1: symbolic. Uh,
0: it's, it's not a it, mere symbol, no. It's
1: not a mere symbol Which of... Which is what of, our, of, our, right.
0: our Protestant brothers and sisters are Right, it's not believe. a reflection
1: of what Christ did 2,000 years ago. Right. It is, uh, it is an actual uh, miracle that is being performed in front of you. Yes. Like when people. When people, that's the thing that uh, drives me. And I, I'm just as guilty of this. And people are like, you know, gosh, I just if I could just get a miracle in my life, well, go to mass.
0: And go to mass. <laughs> it's right
1: there. There's right. a miracle happening right. right in front of you. Right. Exactly. Now, now you say that this is what we believe. I would probably offer a slight modification on that. Is that this is what the Catholic Church teaches. Right. And that this is a dogmatic principle, that it's, which means it's never going to change. Correct. That we absolutely believe that this is the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ up on mm-hmm. the altar, and that's what we're receiving. That being said, um, uh, in a poll that was taken just in 2019, 26% of Catholics, active, regular, church going Catholics, 26% of them, actually believe that. Mm-hmm. While the rest of them think it's just a symbol that there's no way that this yeah. could be happening.
0: Yes, and and I th- you know and and uh, you know it, it gets I don't know how the question was phrased and we can you know parse you know parse out the survey and all that, but yes, the the bottom line is that there are many Catholics for whom a mass I suppose is just a um a quaint ritual, or you know, again, it's maybe uh, still bread and wine just symbolizing you know, bread, the body and blood of Christ, or the last supper. But but you're right, there are a lot of Catholics that don't um accept, and and it may not be that they're willfully rejecting it, maybe they just were poorly catechized. I don't know, but
1: well, no, there's a good portion of them that are poorly catechized that didn't even yeah. know that this was a dogma right. of the Catholic Church, and yeah. I'm not trying to vilify anybody, because I think we all—I'm not going to speak mm-hmm. for you. I'll speak for me. I know that there have been portions of my life mm-hmm. where I really struggled with this concept. And mm-hmm. and it was like, really? And, you know, this is, you know, I, I was, uh, uh, got my major in theology. I was working for the church, and I was still just struggling with the whole idea of— that this is the actual presence of Christ mm-hmm. um, in the host and in and, in and, and the wine, and
0: uh,
1: it, I had to work through it. It's it's yeah. a it's a radical concept,
0: without a doubt. No, I mean it's surprising in a way that anybody would actually believe this because it, it is. is so. Um, yeah, it's it's in a sense. I mean, what what I find very paradoxical about the Eucharist is, on the one hand. Uh, it's, there's a certain reason to it or a certain logic to it, and we can talk more about that. But like the fact that Jesus, on the eve of his death, when he's trying to find a way to keep us in union with him and communion with him, uh, it kind of makes sense that he would choose a sacred meal because you know the importance of meals in our life, our daily life, and also all the ways we celebrate things with food and drink. So that kind of makes sense you know but then to say that you know this really is like not only the body and blood of Christ but it is the representation or the reactualization in our midst 2000 years later of the very sacrifice that occurred on Calvary like that one unique offering of his body and blood on the cross is being re uh, actualized throughout history at every single mass it's it's being made present because you and I weren't there two thousand years ago to be at the cross like that's that is mind blowing and 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 it's like, yeah, how could anybody really believe that but this is this is the the source and summit of our Catholic faith you know and and there's other ways that we believe Jesus is present at Mass. You know, we believe, in fact, that there's four ways that Christ is present. He's present in the priest, who is there in persona Christi Capitus, in the, in the presence of Christ the head. He's present in the gathered assembly, in the people. So people listening should know that, that when they go to Mass, you know, they are also together, the, the presence of Christ at that worship. Um, he's present every time the scriptures are proclaimed. So if there's anybody listening that is a lector at their church, that's a really important ministry. and needs to be done well, because as you proclaim the, the readings, you are really the voice of Christ who is proclaiming through you. But the fourth and most uh, exalted presence of Christ at the Eucharist is in the Eucharist itself, the body and blood of Christ. And and we talk about it as the real presence, meaning not the, those other three presences that I just described aren't real, but there's something like super weighty and super substantial about what happens with the the bread and wine when it's transformed. And that's why, like, we genuflect or we kneel during the Eucharistic prayer. Some people still kneel when they receive right. uh, the Eucharist because they, they see it. it. It is a, a super... Um, uh, like a supercharged presence of Christ. I mean, as, as funny as that might sound. <laughs> uh, the the other thing that, so it's like 70 some percent
1: of Catholics, 74% of Catholics don't believe in the real presence. Um, the other thing that cracks me up is um, that I have a lot of, not just a few, but a lot of Protestant friends that are like, no, it's, it's not real. It's, it's, uh, it's basically a cookie. It's, it's it's a it's a representation of what Christ did two thousand years ago, and and but and they also in their next breath they'll be like, but we should be allowed to come up and receive Eucharist to the Catholic Church. Mm, yeah, and I'm like, but if you just think it's a cookie, what? And it's not a very good tasting cookie. Why? No. Why is this important to you? I think, and I think that the reason I'm going to answer my own question. I think yeah. that why it's important is that there is. An inherent attraction to the presence of Christ in in both forms, in both species, mm-hmm. and 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 I think people are drawn to that. Period. But it's uh, it's 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 just a, it's a struggle for um it, it's a struggle for me when I there's 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 not a part of me that thinks that no one deserves to receive the Eucharist. And then on yeah. the flip side, um, d- I said no one deserves um, to receive the Eucharist. That it is right. a gift. And then on the flip side, it's like everybody deserves to,
0: but they got to know what they're getting. Well, and I think, you know, you, you and I, Jim, met at DeMontreville, the Jesuit retreat house up in Minnesota. And when I was there, uh, occasionally there were Protestants that came on retreat and they were very welcome, but they were told that they couldn't receive the Eucharist at mass. And once in a while, they'd come into my office and ask why. And they'd be actually kind of, like, hurt by that. Yeah, they're offended. Right. Or saddened, you know, or both. And I had to explain to them that, you know, we're not trying to be snooty or exclusive here, but that, you know, within the Protestant world, you've got all these different denominations, and they're used to having a Eucharistic sharing. So Lutherans, you know, going to Methodist churches or whatever— you know, for them, if it is always symbolic, then yeah, like you were saying, it's not that big a deal. We all kind of believe it's a symbol, and let's just share in this kind of reenactment of the Last Supper together. But I think what I try to impress on them is for for us as Catholics, because this is the most sacred thing we have, and because it isn't even enough just to believe that it's actually the body and blood of Christ, but in our Mass, in our Eucharistic prayer, we talk about being united with Francis, our Pope, and in my case, in Milwaukee here, Jerome, our Bishop. And so there's a way in which um, it's not enough just to believe that the, the bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ, but you're you're buying into the whole deal. You're saying, I believe everything that the Catholic Church professes. And so that's why we can't welcome non-catholics it's not because we want them to feel excluded or marginalized it's because there's a reality that we're professing and unfortunately at this point in our history we are divided we're not united in all the essentials and so you know it would be kind of a kind of a sham to kind of pretend, you know, and paper over our differences by saying, oh, yeah, let's all just kind of share in this together, when really our, our belief both in the Eucharist and in the, and in the other truths of Christianity are, are quite divergent. And so um, that's really why. It's, it's respecting—it's trying to respect what, what the reality is. And, I, and I, know other, I know Protestants who totally get that and will not receive— Sure. Because they understand that right. yeah, what I what I believe is not what you believe on There
1: that, There's know? there's a difference between believing um, what is actually happening happening on the altar and having a respect and a reverence for that practice. Right. And you don't necessarily have to believe one um, to to. I mean, like if if, if I go to a synagogue mm-hmm. and 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 want to participate, uh, I'm not going to be like, no, the yarmulke is stupid. I'm not going to put that on. No. That's dumb. You know, and I'm yeah. not going to demand to go and read the Torah. I'm going to go. I'm going to go with some reverence to this yes. whole thing. Yes. And it, I'm not sharing their beliefs, but I will respect um, what their practices are and what they believe. Right. And be and be reverent
0: to that. And and, and, and when we go to the synagogue, we're we're kind of a guest, right? We recognize right. that we're guests, and so we're very pleased to be there, and we can participate to the extent that we can. But yeah, you know, a guest doesn't usually take over the place and demand you know, everything. No, there's a sense of, like, I'm, I'm an invited guest and I want to respect kind of the rules of the house, if you will. You know, you used the word altar a minute ago. You said what happens on the altar, and that made me think it might be helpful to highlight that at every Mass, the you know, that object in the sanctuary that is used for Mass... It is an altar, and what's an altar used for, even in other religions or in general? An altar is where there's a sacrifice, you know? And so it is, it is the holy sacrifice of the Mass, and it is that, re, again, that reactualization in our midst of, of a sacrifice that took place 2,000 years ago on the cross. But we also talk about it legitimately as the table of the Lord, and we talk about sharing in the Lord's Supper. So that highlights more the meal aspect or dimension of this of this sacrament so it's a both and it's it's a sacrifice on an altar and it's a sacred meal on a table and um, and i think there's a lot of richness there you know we can talk we could talk a long time about the, the different ways in which we celebrate all kinds of important moments in our life with meals and so again it makes sense that jesus would leave us with a meal when he wanted to remain intimately united with us, and and what better? T- I mean, literally, we take the Eucharist into ourselves. I mean, we consume God. We consume Christ. He goes into our bodies, is, is absorbed into us, and then he transforms us into him over the course of a lifetime. I mean, how more intimate can we be united with him? What a great method is to say, "I'm actually going to allow you to to feast on me, to bring you, to bring me into your very." self right own. so it'll
1: be a part of the body of Christ
0: yeah yeah the whole body and image right
1: exactly the, the, um, and, you know, some, and I don't mean to harp on the Protestants but um, several of the Protestants who I love and are very good friends of mine mm-hmm. um, and who will never listen to this podcast so they won't hear this <laughs> um, but they all uh, they will they will openly admit that they'll take the Bible literally and I'll be like okay how about when he says, "This is my body, and this is my blood, right. and you have to eat of my flesh if you want to enter the kingdom right. of heaven," and he repeats that one three times? Like, I know what. Well, that's just symbolic. Well, well how and the Greek, everything else I know. I know. How I know. is everything else like you know literal? But right. these three things that you have a hard time wrapping your
0: head well, around are symbolic. And this highlights the need for an interpreter, right? Like the Bible doesn't give in and of itself an explanation for its own interpretation. Um, and that's why you see so many, even within the Protestant world, you have many different splintering interpretations of different passages. So as a Catholic myself, I, I, I see the ch- the church's official teaching office, the Pope and all the bishops, bishops united with him, as really essential because somebody has to decide, you know, what these passages mean. You said yourself, Jim, you know, that... Um, you know, when you point out that passage in, in John's Gospel about you know you have to eat my body, you know, and drink my blood, that verb, uh, Bishop Barron has a really neat uh, YouTube video on this. You know, the verb in Greek, trogain, means to actually like gnaw. It's not just even like eat my flesh; it's like it's like gnaw on or chew my flesh. And, and I'm when, not sure I and, and needed to know that. Oh well, yeah, well <laughs> I, no, but it, it highlights the very I'm like very physicality. And, and you can understand why in John's gospel in chapter 6, people start leaving Jesus. because yeah, they'll they take off. He's probably talking about cannibalism, and of course he's not. Well, and they and he, ask
1: him three times. They're like, oh, you're just, uh, that's just a metaphor, right? And I he's like, know. nope. Right. And he
0: just keeps reinforcing that it isn't. <laughs> so I know, I, I, I agree with you. I, to me, it seems very clear of what Jesus wanted us to believe.
1: So other evidentiary stuff, if if you don't mind me throwing this yeah, out there, that's a neat one
0: too. Uh, thank you. I may have made it up.
1: Um, but th- things that I have found that that when I was struggling with the concept of of you know when I was struggling with the dogma of of the Eucharist, um, I was going out and and doing some research and doing some reading on things, and I found I came across a, an article by a priest. Um, who had a, was having a conversation with a former Satanist, mm-hmm. and if you want to dismiss this, that's fine. I happen to believe it, but um, they were talking about whether or not Satanists could recognize um, the the a blessed host versus an unconsecrated one. Mm-hmm. And I asked Nicholas whether this was uh, true. He replied that it is. He told, he told us that he could do, do this himself before his conversion from Satanism. A chill went down my spine. If someone were to put 10 identical communion hosts in front of him, nine unconsecrated and one consecrated, he would have been able to point directly and immediately to the host that had been consecrated. Mm-hmm. I asked him in amazement, but how are you able to know? And he looked at me, and the words he spoke are forever burned in my memory. Because of the hate, Father, because of the burning a mm-hmm. hate, I feel I would feel towards that host yeah. apart from all the others. Wow,
0: yeah, that's telling. You know that I mean that's a great uh, anecdote because you know even in the Gospels we see that the demons do recognize Jesus as the Son of God. So it's not that they like are blind or oblivious to this. It's precisely the fact that they know who he is, and yet they still hate him and they want to lead other people to hate him. So, um, yeah, so I could see that, whereas Satanist has somehow this supernatural sense of which host is consecrated because uh, he wants to uh, hate it and, and as you know, they desecrate it. That's the word, you know, they right. desecrate it. Um, you so, don't read about
1: Satanists yeah. breaking into... You know the Presbyterian Church, no. and stealing the bread and the wine. Right. It's always right. a Catholic church. Right. And that's yeah. that's not to be dismissive of the Presbyterian faith. I know a lot of really good Presbyterians, but yeah. um, but but we're, we're talking about the real presence of Christ, and they're not looking for it in anywhere in the Presbyterian Church right. within their hosts. Yeah, no, Or the, whatever true. bread they're using at that
0: time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: Also, and this is what really turned me around on this, Father. I started looking into... I bought a book on Eucharistic miracles. Yeah. And I started reading through those. and And I just went... I, I was just doing a search online um the finding various just things within the past 20 years mm-hmm. October 21st 2006 during a parish retreat a consecrated host that was about to be distributed. Um, if used a red substance, the bishop of the uh, place, Most Reverend Alejo Zavala Castro, convened a theological commission uh, to investigate and determine whether it was a hoax or a genuine miracle. In 2009, he invited Dr. R- Ricardo Gomez to conduct scientific research. And what they found was re- the reddish substance analyzed. Because it corresponds to blood in which there is hemoglobin and DNA of human origin,
0: and it's always the same blood type. This it's is re- all, this is all repeated. AB. It's all AB,
1: and they can never figure out what the DNA sequence is. Mm-hmm. And when when eucharistic miracles, when when the bread turns into flesh, it's always um, cardiac muscle. It's right? always heart muscle. Yep, every yeah. single time. I know.
0: So like what does that say? You know, this is science again coming to the aid of faith and you know, yes, there are Eucharistic miracles also in the Middle Ages and other periods where the science wasn't as developed, but yeah, you're highlighting modern, you know, modern uh, miracles that were verified uh and, and and there's a there's a consistent pattern that repeats itself. So again, that, you know, that's not I mean you still need faith to believe it, but but, boy, it, it's hard to refute it when you have that kind of evidence. And you can go visit it. These places are open. Mm-hmm. You can yeah. go You can go see these things for yourself. And, and I
1: think that, I mean, we're starting to build listeners, and we're getting people to email us, and this is all great. And I'm going to guess that a large portion, if not all of our listeners, are completely on board with everything that we're talking about. None of this stuff is something that they are probably currently struggling with. Maybe, mm-hmm. maybe not. But what I would suggest is... Because if you know the fact that only twenty six percent of Catholics um, believe in the real presence, if you fa- find any value in this conversation that Father Rob and I are having, maybe share this with a couple people that you know that are in mm-hmm. the Catholic faith, but might be uh, you know a, a little uh, a little less fervent or. Um, Yeah, might be questioning this stuff totally. No, I mean, the the best way to answer these questions is to go out and do the research, like I did. And after I did the research, after I spent some time in adoration, I was done. That's it, I know that this is true. Yep, and then on the flip side, then all of a sudden, like
0: our responsibility becomes that much greater if we're going to receive, right? Oh, yeah, we have to be living the Eucharist out. I mean, we have to, first of all, approach the Eucharist, as we were saying earlier, with great reverence. And kind of, I mean, when I say fear and trembling, I'm I'm not saying literally, like, we should be cowering. But we should be approaching it with that kind of reverence as we do God himself, because this is God himself. It's the body and blood of Christ. It's, It's the real presence of Jesus Christ, which means we want to receive it always worthily, and that means not with with especially major serious grave sin on our souls right and i th- and i think you know we were talking about this before the podcast that throughout catholic history there were periods up until fairly recently actually where most Catholics only went to actually receive the Eucharist a few times a year. They went to Mass every week, but the reception of the Eucharist was something that was very rare. And, of course, um, you know, older Catholics will tell you that before Vatican II, like in the 40s and 50s, um, there were long lines of uh, penitents going to confession before receiving a communion. The lines on Saturday were long. You know, today... It's good that we've promoted daily Eucharist, regular Eucharist, uh, receiving it. That's awesome. But the danger is that we receive it, you know, kind of glibly, and, and we don't uh, go to confession beforehand, and that's kind of spiritually dangerous. So we want to be receiving it reverently, and then we've got to be living it out. If you're going to Mass every, every Sunday for an hour, getting the Eucharist, receiving the Eucharist, and then the rest of the week, you know, you're, you're sinning, you know, at work and in your family, um, that's not, that's not good, you know? I mean, you're not living the Eucharist. It's not a magic trick. You have to, like, willingly and consciously uh, live it out in your daily life. So as we, I guess the way I like to say it sometimes is we receive the body of Christ so that we can be the body of Christ. We have to be living that out in daily life. And
1: it's not a right. It's, it's a gift.
0: Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and
1: and it, once we start approaching it as like, this is my right as a Catholic, um, I, I think that's we're heading down the wrong path at that
0: yeah. point. Yeah, no, that's true. Uh,
1: and, al- and also, you know, you know when we've talked about confession and, and things like that. Also, um, and then you can tell me, because uh, this doesn't get talked up, uh, about. Uh, nobody talks about um, uh, the, the uh, spiritual communion. And, 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 right. and, and offering, there's a prayer that you can offer. If you don't feel worthy of going up to and, and receive communion, there's a prayer that you can offer. My Jesus, I believe that you are present in the most holy sacrament. I love you above all things, and I mm-hmm. desire to receive you into my soul. Since I cannot at this moment receive you sacramentally, come at least spiritually into my heart. I embrace you as if you were already there and unite myself wholly to you. Mm-hmm. Never
0: permit permit me to be separated from you. Amen. Yeah, and a lot of Catholics have been praying either that prayer or something similar during this COVID time because they can't receive him, you know, actually. So they'll watch Mass, live streamed, and then they'll say a prayer like that. And yeah, I mean, it's not obviously quite the same, but but the Lord appreciates the fact that we're desirous of him. Right. And And he can come... He can give us grace, however he chooses, right? Yep. So he's not dependent on the sacraments, but he knows that that we, because of who we are and our human nature, that we need these rituals and we need these like concrete things, like water for baptism and and oil for anointing and bread and wine for the Eucharist. So you know, it's it's good that we can we can um, uh, be present in these and participate in these rituals. But if we're prevented, either because we're you know, again, not able to go to church because of COVID, or we're prevented because right now I have serious sin on my soul and I couldn't get the confession. Uh, we can still do that spiritual communion, which is which is valuable. Yep. Um, you know, one of the things I think I want to highlight too, Jim, is our time is maybe uh, winding down. Is in addition to like reading the Catechism and looking online for good articles about the Eucharist, I think uh, paying attention to some of the great saints of our tradition is really helpful. I mean, there have been a number of saints throughout the years that have had a huge devotion to the Eucharist and have written very eloquently about it. And again, you can find that if you if you just Google Catholic saints in the Eucharist. I know for me personally, there is a kind of a hero of mine, Father Walter Chizik, a Jesuit who uh, spent uh, many years in Soviet labor camps in the Cold War, for three years he was in solitary confinement couldn 't even celebrate mass when finally, he was moved to these prison camps. you know the prisoners would help him by smuggling in bread and wine and then kind of clandestinely out at the work site where when the when the guards weren 't so um, you know like looking over their shoulder, Father Walter would actually celebrate mass on like a rock or just whatever they had and um, and the workers would actually, because at that time they couldn't eat before receiving the Eucharist, so they would skip breakfast, and these are prisoners who are not treated well to begin with, but they would forego breakfast so that they could receive the Eucharist later in the day. I mean, it meant that much to them, and in, in this book that he wrote called He Leadeth Me, he just talks so movingly about what it was like as a priest to be able to celebrate Mass in those very, uh, difficult uh, conditions and and just how grateful he was that, in, in, you know, kind of in this remote, you know, literally Siberian, you know, hinterland, he could bring the very presence of Jesus Christ to the people of God. So anyway, sometimes I think we, um, unfortunately in the West, we're so used to going to Mass so freely and having that liberty that the Eucharist maybe isn't as meaningful for us as it might be for those Catholics, you know, in China or North Korea or other maybe certain Muslim countries where they're really persecuted more, and where uh, it it they're really putting their lives literally on the line to go and receive the Eucharist.
1: What was the name of the book again?
0: Uh, it's called "He Leadeth Me." He wrote it with a Jesuit name. Father Dan Flaherty, but it's basically his autobiography. And there's another one called "With God in Russia," but I prefer "He Leadeth Me." It was written later. It was it was more the book he himself said it's more the book he really meant to write, and it's kind of a spiritual distillation of all his experience um, uh, when he was in Russia. You've had me read that years. Book. I, I okay. Well, I I recommend. You don't it, remember author. that. <laughs> I guess I don't, but I, re- well, I recommend it to so many people. See, I listen I mean, to you. It's one of my... <laughs> I'm happy to hear that.
1: He <laughs> asked me to do something, I, you know, I, I usually do
0: it. You Usually, emphasis on usually. I,
1: I read the book 20 years ago okay, when you were giving uh, me a spiritual direction. You're like, you need to read this book, fellows. And I was like, uh, all right. Well, that's uh, okay. And it's a good book. Maybe that should be the thing that we like.
0: Oh, I would, I would love if that were the thing.
1: Well, let's make that well, the thing that we like, right. then. Okay, all Get, right, let's it, do it. It's uh, He leadeth me, and the
0: yeah, the priest's name is Father Walter, and it's C I Z, S E K. So a good Polish name. He's a Polish American, uh, Just Walter, like it's Chusek. pronounced. Yes, indeed, <laughs> and. Uh, We'll put a link. We'll put actually, a link I, think I, I think I think I think I actually swapped the Z and the S. I think it's C I S Z E K. But anyway, no, he, um, uh, We'll put a link in the in the description. Yeah, the we'll podcast. put a, li- a link in it. Yeah, Good. we. Yeah, we will. You will. <laughs> <laughs> I'll I'll pray that you put the right link in. How's that? Um,
1: How about a prayer, Father?
0: What do you all do? right, let's do it in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, Heavenly Father, Jesus, our Lord and brother. Holy Spirit, our advocate and guide. We're so grateful for the gift of the Eucharist in particular. We're grateful that you nourish us and feed us uh, in so many different ways in our daily life. And we ask you uh, on the eve, as we record this, we're on the eve of the baptism of the Lord. So help us, Jesus, to live out the grace of our own baptism uh, this coming week and each day of our lives. As we return to the ordinary time, liturgically, help us to recognize that that really every day is extraordinary if it's lived under um, the guidance of your Holy Spirit. So may the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit descend upon all of our listeners and remain with them forever. Amen.
1: Amen, Father. If you hmm. like this podcast, you want to share this with somebody who might be struggling with the whole Eucharist thing, please uh, do that. Uh, we want to recognize the fact that uh, we have had listeners in the past week from the Philippines and Germany. Excellent. So thank you for listening. <laughs> Share this with people that you like. Um, hope you have a great week.
0: God bless everybody. Bye-bye. <laughs>